1: The story, it comes from China, retaliating, said it would levy an additional 25% tariff on imports of 106 US products, including soybeans, automobiles, chemicals and aircraft. This in response to proposed American duties on Chinese high-tech goods. All of this in the last 24 hours. To draw a distinction, a line between what is a proposal and what is actually policy, Chris Rubke joins us now, MFUG, Union Bank Chief Financial Economist. Chris, let's drain the drama just for a moment and look at what's on the table. Is this a negotiation or the first shot of a trade war?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it sounded like China was just putting this out here. This is what they could do, but they didn't announce the date of enacting these tariffs. So it sounds like both sides are hitting each other pretty hard in terms of rhetoric. But we're a ways away from finding that exports between the two countries are going to slow down here.
1: Well, let's go let's go into what's on the table. The United States has unveiled proposals for tariffs. They will be discussed over the next sixty days. And the yeah. Chinese have said, here are our proposals. And in sixty days, if you implement these tariffs, as policy, we will respond, and this proposal will become policy. This seems to me, Chris, like high-stake negotiations for the next 60 days. Would that be an accurate description of what it is?
2: Yeah, it is high stakes. I guess one of the, I, one of the problems is that the president and his uh, trade advisors have kind of drawn a line in the sand. It's almost a campaign promise that he's not going to back off of the president and that is they there's a three hundred and seventy five billion dollar deficit in goods, trade deficit in goods between us and China. He wants to cut that by a hundred billion. Well that a hundred billion out of three seventy five, that's a big, big number. I don't think he's gonna get that. So that's problem one. Yeah. The other thing that disturbs me that may make this story have some legs besides just people pounding the table is the intellectual property idea. The fact that the administration seems to be going to bat for U.S. companies doing business over there, doing joint ventures that they don't own, giving up their technology secrets to China, production secrets for the goods they produce, and then walking away and getting nothing. That is more intractable. I don't know how they're going to resolve that? Because that's like a 30-year trend towards that. How, how are they going to reverse that? I don't know how that's going we to We can get out. into
1: the, the China Made yeah. in 2025 proposal yes. a, a little bit later with you, I'm sure. For me, what's on the table from the Chinese was, was a little bit of a heightened rhetoric kind of move from the Chinese themselves by bringing soybeans into the conversation. Yes, that's an escalation, politically yeah. speaking. For the United States, what's ironic about this whole situation is for the United States, they are reciprocating their own move from the Chinese tariffs of their own. And the Chinese are saying, well, it's only polite for us to reciprocate. Right. The irony of that is is that it's the United States doing the reciprocating here, and it's the Chinese escalating things. Would that be would that be a decent read of what's happening here? This is an escalation from the Chinese. Yes, perhaps more is. from the United States to bring soybeans <clears throat> into the conversation. Yes,
2: and it happened so quickly. It happened very, very quickly. And I think what they're doing is they're reading the political tea leaves for the president and saying, you know, the heartland of the country, your supporters uh, produce soybeans, and they're going to go out of business if you can't offload these crops to somewhere else in the world, which, of course, they can't. So I think they're needling the president directly.
0: I mean, John Farrell, I thought your data check was great. And, yes, I'm watching dollar yen as well, John, 106.18 is really not correlated with doing. No, the, in fact, you know
1: what my take yeah. is this morning, Tom? That the yeah. real price action is just sort of isolated into equities. It's an equity vault it's story. selected equities, I like don't Boeing see it. A, a real risk-off yeah. story, broad-based risk-off, right. would be a big bit at the front end of the Treasury curve and a market deciding that we're going to price out hikes for yeah. 2018. Right I don't or, see that.
0: Yeah, right or wrong, John, what I've emphasized this morning is the complexities that are out there. Chris Rupke, Michael McKee had a brilliant observation that the China-U.S. back and forth on soybeans, good morning all of you on SiriusXM Channel 119 in Iowa, is Argentina. Because at the margin, I believe Argentina is the number two uh, exporter to China on Mm. soybeans. So there's a game theory to this that Dr. Navarro and President Trump Seem to downplay. Where are you on the game theory, the tit for tat of trade? I mean, it's a proven fact. There's a game theory, right? Yeah,
2: I, I guess what it illustrates is that there, you know, it's very difficult to be a, a, a winner in this environment. I mean, if you go back, didn't we slap some trade tariffs on? I believe it was steel in the Bush administration, which ended up coming back off. I, I think the problem is that. It looks good that you can pound the table and put on a tariff, but it doesn't work like you thought it would. And, and again, by trying to do this, you're trying to interrupt a trend towards globalization that has taken place over three decades. You can't pound the table and say, we want to change it now. Yeah. It's, you don't reverse something in one day that's been a 30-year story.
1: The problem is, though, it's the Chinese that haven't been liberalizing here, Chris. And at some point, someone has to stand up and say enough's enough. The Made in China 2025 program, and I promised that we would get there, is a very, very transparent program of the Chinese to say to the rest of the world, here are the industries that by 2025 we want to dominate. Now I think it would be pretty naive for the rest of the world to stand idly by and talk about glorious globalization and free trade, Mm. while the Chinese keep their protectionist barriers to entry up and say, look guys, in 2025 we're going to dominate all of these industries, enjoy your free trade, enjoy your globalism, and in 2025 you'll wake up and we'll be leading the world. Why should you stand by and just let that happen, Chris?
2: Well I guess that's what we're seeing happen by the way the, the way you paint it it's almost frightening isn't it it's kind of it's the battle of who's going to be great again are we going to make america great again is china going to become great. There has been a complete uh,
1: naive <clears throat> naivety about the administrations gone by in the United States of America for the last twenty years about this, Chris. There has been a wish, some optimism, that the Chinese would wake up in twenty twenty five and be more like America and be more like Europe. And the message of the last few years is that is just not going to happen. Isn't the president onto something here?
2: Yeah, he is, but don't forget, it's going to be very. They can say they want to dominate certain industries, right. but It's not necessarily going to happen. There's a lot of cars coming in from South Korea right now. I don't see that changing. Um, you know, I know China wants to develop to develop their own uh, car industry, like trucks, and try and export those. Uh, goods to the rest of the world but it just saying it doesn't mean it's going to happen so I don't know I mean I wouldn't go too far with the 2025 right. story on the part of China okay. taking over the world John
0: Farrell how far did you grow up from Lancashire is that am I a saying a couple that of right? hours you said it right a couple of a, a, a few hours north of they have a small team that wears red Liverpool right
1: well no that's well you've got Liverpool and then you've got Manchester United Manchester United is in Lancashire? Uh, Manchester well, Manchester United is more of a Lancashire type of club. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, it's more of a northern... You'd probably have more Man United supporters in I Lancashire just pronounce than, it than, than like than John
0: Liverpool. Lennon because of the song. Chris Rupke, Chris. let's lecture Mr. Farrow oh. on the great debate here. And John brings up an absolute classical economics take. We all learned from William Stanley Jevons of Lancashire, England, a million hmm. years ago, about marginalia. How hmm. does the inherent Washington... Trade group explained to the president the marginalia of William Stanley Jevons that the next action is more important than John's good idea of getting to 2025. Marginal trade dynamics work, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, to me, this just shows you how what a slow process this is going to be, and if you know, Delph- there's nothing
0: slow about the president, to John's
2: point. I know, but he, he, he wants that. But it's just, yeah, it's going to be very slow in occurring, uh, putting these tariffs on, seeing if it adjusts the trade flows. I mean, it, in, in a certain fashion, I mean, 25% uh, tariff, maybe that's not going to slow the exports mm-hmm. coming in as much as you think as well. We don't we don't yeah. know. There's so many unknowns here. Chris Rocky. Uh,
1: We've got to leave it there. It's great to have you with us. MFUG, Union Bank, Chief Financial Economist. Mm -hmm. Let's just raise the question. Why is BMW starting production in China? Should I tell you why? Because you have to produce in China. Otherwise, if you import those BMWs into China, you face significant tariffs for bringing luxury autos into China. It's because they have significant barriers to entry that many Mm. of these manufacturers have to actually produce in China. And this goes to the heart of the debate, Tom, in Washington, D.C. The heart of the debate is that the Chinese need to open up. And this is what is happening.
0: Michelle Meyer with us now. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch on international economics and really how it folds back into the gdp of the united states of america michelle you're expert on american housing but you do a lot lot more for mr harris and company do you change gdp models off of nasty trade tip for tat
3: eventually you do um it just depends on how severe it gets so for right now, our um, simulations of what's been put into effect thus far suggests a very small impact on the aggregate numbers. Um, so it is a bit more inflationary, but um, you know we're assuming somewhat limited pass-through to overall consumer spending uh, from this increase in. in, in and import prices. Um, and then in terms of aggregate trade flows, again, it's not a huge number that's going to move the needle very much. So potentially a slight drag to GDP growth, potentially a slight increase in inflation. Um, but where it becomes obviously a lot more problematic if it persists, If we continue to see this back and forth, this retaliation, um, where we put something in place, China put something in place, other economies put um, some some sort of trade specifications in place, and it also ripples through the financial markets, then we have a whole different ballgame. Michelle,
1: assuming these proposals actually get put in place and they actually become policy, um, I'm going to ask that really horrible question that economists have to answer. The percentage chance that actually these proposals become policy? Do you have any idea right now, Michelle?
3: We don't. We don't. And luckily, as you know, as economists, obviously we have to do different scenarios. Um, but my approach in, in this environment where there's just been so many political unknowns is that I wait until policies have actually been implemented before we put them explicitly in our forecasts. Um, because there's so many moving parts. The headlines are changing on a daily basis. So trying to calibrate your forecasts um, in real time, is just virtually impossible. Well, ultimately,
1: so, Michelle, you'd be calibrating your forecast to for the risk of something happening. Does the risk of something happening damage risk appetite in any way? Does it damage the economy as opposed to the reality of something happening?
3: Well, again, that goes into uh, the linkages. And, and the risk factors would be shown through financial conditions uh, rather than the real economy. So until the policies are put in place... Yeah. For the most part, economic actors are not going to change their, their models. Maybe you have an uncertainty shock. You have some drawdown in terms of production or some concern in terms of how, pe- how companies are, are, are allocating their capital. Um, <clears throat> but really, until you have the actual policies and you have the clarity on what those policies look like, it's hard to say that you're going to see uh, a reaction in the real economy.
0: In your micro-analysis, how is the first quarter? We're getting huge invariable opinions.
3: Yeah, well, the first quarter is plagued by residual seasonality, and that's what's happening now, too. So mm-hmm. GDP growth is tracking sub-2%. Um, we're tracking about 1.7% for GDP growth. Um, and, yeah. and that's not so surprising because we've seen it year after year, and you continue to have right. this divergence between what the GDP numbers are saying versus job growth. Job growth yeah. is very strong, and GDP is very weak, which means productivity growth in the first quarter was a bit yeah. low.
0: Uh, John, I saw residual seasonality open for Allison Krause. They were awesome. <laughs> they were outstanding. Tom, you're out, out of control this morning. Like
1: Honestly, you're out of control this morning. Yeah. Um, Michelle Ma, you talk about GDP tracking south of 2%. What's your base case for the rest of the year? Because a lot of people would talk about this firm macro backdrop and that the fundamentals are still okay. Relative to expectations, things weren't okay through Q1. Does Q2 look better?
3: It does look better, in our opinion. Um, so How? For- How does it look better? I'll tell you, so we're looking for a rebound to a mid 3% pace on the, for the following reasons. Um, one is we do anticipate the consumer bounces back in the second quarter, and I think that. Generally speaking, conditions are favorable for the consumer. We've had strong job growth. We've had hints of wage growth. Um, Consumer confidence measures are at very strong levels. And tax cuts kicked in um, in in the early spring. So um, that should then further boost consumer spending. They've already brought back their savings rate to a bit of a higher level. So I think to get that strong rebound in the second quarter, the onus is on the consumer. Um, And for right now, our expectation is that the consumer will show through.
1: Goldilocks growth, Uh, Michelle, is it over? The story of low inflation and really stable output numbers elsewhere. Are we going to be talking about that Friday?
3: Um, You know, I I think it's still uh, largely an environment of Goldilocks growth in that I don't think we're going to see big inflationary pressures this year. Um, So, you know. Again, to find Goldilocks, is it 3% growth, 3.5% growth or something softer? Um, I think we'll end up seeing something a bit softer than that. So, yes, momentum will mm. still be there. We will still see output improve. Um, and I don't think we're going to have a real inflation scare. The next few months, though... Very importantly, we should note the base effects are favorable for core inflation. Right. So we're going to see <clears throat> core inflation trend up on a year-over-year basis, but I don't think we're going to see signs uh-huh. of consecutive month-to-month uh-huh. surprises.
0: Let me go signs. to let me Michelle. Let me go to what made you famous, which is housing dynamics. <laughs> what is the elasticity or responsiveness of the thirty-year fixed mortgage rate? Is that a fossil study, or do you get value in gaming American housing by looking at? what happens when we have higher 30-year fixed mortgage?
3: I mean, I think you have to look at mortgage rates when you're analyzing the housing market. It's an important input as is um, income creation and expectations for future income creation and where you are in terms of valuation, home prices relative to income and rent. So mortgage rates, Certainly a factor, and that is certainly a factor that's headed higher, and it's, it's potentially you know, weighing on affordability. Now, I do think there are offsets from the fact that yeah. income creation has been stronger and that confidence, generally speaking, around housing has been strong. And an important fact when you think about home price appreciation and how mortgage rates are going to feed into that is the supply side. We still have a very thin market in terms of housing supply. So even in an environment where mortgage rates are heading higher, it's not obvious that's going to curb home price appreciation when you have such limited uh, supply out there for the majority of the country.
1: Michelle Mayer, great to have you on the program. Thank you very much Thank for joining so us. Thank you so much, Michelle. The head of U.S. economics it. for Bank of America Merrill Lynch.
0: It is great to see uh, a Bloomberg people go viral, as Shira Oviday did two days ago, with her brilliant work on Spotify and on their interesting transaction. Everybody picked you up, Shira. Mike Allen over at Axios gave you major Facetime. What was the distinction of the way you approached this novel transaction? What set your GADFLY coverage apart from all the other blather that was out there?
4: Uh, I appreciate the compliment, that was very flattering. Uh, So look, one thing that really struck me yesterday as everybody was declaring victory about this unusual not IPO stock listing from Spotify is just how few shares traded out of the gate. So normally, if you have a conventional IPO, companies look to sell, you know, a healthy percentage of mm-hmm. their total shares, something like 10%, 20%. And Spotify, again, it's not a conventional IPO, so these rules are a little bit different, right. but at least <clears throat> out of the gate, Spotify sold fewer than 6 million shares on Tuesday, which was about 3% of total shares yeah, outstanding. I
0: get the idea that the tech people are playing by their own rules. It's like, classic a, Class B, no, it's like Class A, Class Z. There's all sorts of stuff we can go into. But the heart of the matter is Wall Street was boxed out of a traditional transaction, and yet you and a select group of others say, wait a minute, they weren't. Goldman Sachs, Allen & Company, and others we were actually involved. How can you have it both ways?
4: Yeah, I, I agree with you that the narrative about this not IPO, right, was that Spotify uh, defied they conventional wisdom. Own. They cut out Wall Street, they cut out Lloyd Blankfein. Right. They had three of the most prominent tech financial advisors working on this transaction, as you said, Allen & Company, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and they paid them $35 million, which is a lot of money.
0: Yeah, but that's what Farrell gets for a weaker real deal. (laughs) I want to understand that this is critical. This is the dirt of the industry. The way it works is you call up BlackRock, Pimco, and Fidelity and six other victims, and you say, what do you want for this dog? They set the price. Did that really happen here, even though we're all pretending it didn't?
4: Eh, sort of. So, I mean, I thought there was a really interesting details in our colleague's uh, Alex Barinka's story yesterday, which was basically the bankers spent many weeks, uh, b- before the not the stock listing of Spotify, calling up both owners, existing owners of Spotify shares yeah. and potential buyers ah, of Spotify shares to go. see at what price sellers might mm. sell and yeah. and to canvas can we, for potential can buyers. We, it's the
1: real breaking news here that Tom Keen has stood up for this conversation Yeah, in, we didn't in the get, studio? No, but we didn't get a, this a road first show. Time, this is the first time I've seen you stand okay. up for a story. First
0: of all, there's quality of lunch at the road shows. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and tech companies are notorious for not doing like a real lunch. Yeah, You always leave hungry. But, John, what she just said is critical, which is there was really a pricing discovery going on, even though everybody was standing around but fearing outs- no evil.
1: Outside of the price discovery, Shira, sure, the real story here, for me at least, from my own perspective, is that it was another tech company that didn't actually need to raise capital because they've been so well funded True. in private markets. Isn't that the future here?
4: Uh, we'll see. So, A, I'm not sure that Spotify did itself any favors by not raising money. So this is a company that, yes, they have been cash flow positive... But they have ambitious plans to branch into new businesses. That's going to require investment. So I do wonder if down the road it's going to look like a mistake that they didn't choose to raise money when they could have in, a, in an IPO. Um, but you're right that I'm sure other tech companies that you know like to defy conventional wisdom or like to pretend that they defy conventional wisdom will look at Spotify's direct listing and want to do the same. But the fact is there aren't that many prominent tech companies, private tech companies that have healthy enough financials to go public without raising money. So Uber, you know, notoriously, wildly unprofitable you can't do a non-IPO kind of event no, but no, i would assume there's, there's
1: no rush for them to come to the public market to raise capital because despite uber's yes. problems shira you've you've picked up on this many a time people are throwing money at them
4: absolutely and i think that is true of you know a, a small elite category of private tech companies, they don't need the public markets to raise money.
1: Shira Overday, it's been great to catch up with you. Some tremendous, tremendous columns coming out of Bloomberg, Gadfly and Shira. Front of the pack for me and Tom, I have to say, I've never seen Tom Keane stand up for a story in, in the studio. <laughs> I'll take it as a compliment. Yeah, I've never seen that.
0: <clears throat> well, Baroness Overday came in and, you know, you gotta, show her, you gotta show her some credit. I mean, folks, this is what it's like. I mean, Shira's in the trenches on this thing and she gets global pickup of You know, amid all the 87 other articles that were out there, which is very good. Share over day on Spotify as well. It is good to get a calm and reasoned voice in here with the tumult that we see in economics and the markets. Uh, Stephen Friedman. Is with BMP Paribas. Stephen, I want to go back to a meeting I had over a decade ago in Beijing where the senior management of Paris, BMP Paribas, lined me up with one of your chief representatives in China. And it was a private and scintillating conversation on the new capitalism of China. BMP Paribas has an absolutely unique China view that really goes back more than two, even three decades as well. What does your Asian desk say about the Chinese view? of these tariff wars?
5: Uh, well, our China economist believes that the response from China will be uh, proportional, but ultimately keeping the doors open to negotiations. And I, I think that's what we're seeing so far in the response from China. Yes, they're clear that they will retaliate, uh, but there's no date. Uh, there's a sense that we should be mm-hmm. talking this problem through as opposed to jumping right to tariffs. So. You were at Wesleyan and Russian studies. You
0: then did initiate it at the Johns Hopkins uh, University. And part of this is time function. China has a far longer time function than any president of the United States. Do they just wait
5: President Trump out? Uh, I I think it's challenging in this situation because when I look at the Trump administration, it really does have this America First trade agenda. And we have a, a president who is relatively impatient on this front so I think the administration is serious about moving forward with tariffs if absolutely necessary and I think China would like to de-escalate the situation and I think they're very willing to negotiate does it put a damper
0: on economic growth in the United States if you had to bring in a few tweaks your GDP
5: numbers uh, not yet no I think if if we can steer a road towards negotiating on some of the uh, IP practice, uh, questions, technology transfer, market access, that means that in the end, actually, this could be a net positive for the U.S. It's a question of whether we can get there without going down the route of tariffs first. But as of yet, I haven't had to tweak my forecast. I think what would be um, eye-opening in the near term is if there's a sense that this is going to escalate. You have further declines in the stock market. There's a shock to business confidence, and that ultimately reigns in uh, yeah. business spending and hiring.
0: Because Q1, the estimates I'm seeing, are, you know, is a general statement all over the place. I mean, nobody really has a handle on it. Is Q1 a one-off in the United States? Is that just like now a permanent theory that first quarter's always nudgy?
5: I think there's a little bit less confidence in projecting first quarter growth. There's a sense that there's some residual seasonality in the data. So I think we, along with many others, tend to look uh, through any weakness uh, in in the first quarter numbers, seeing that a lot of the other indicators, survey data, for example, tells you that the economy is on a strong footing.
0: Um, I look at the Fed and the certitude of three slash four rate hikes. Guy Johnson mentioned today off our London desk that European inflation once again came in maybe on plan even, a little light. How will Chairman Powell react if we don't get the inflation pickup everybody's presuming?
5: So I think he's a bit different uh, from Yellen in that he's really more in the show-me camp. He wants to see evidence of inflation moving higher. He's not going to move rates higher just based on what a model tells you inflation should be in a year. That being said, we are seeing some strength in, in the inflation numbers as of late, and I think we get to the end of the year Core PC inflation should be at two percent, maybe even two point one percent. Now the question is whether that lasts uh, um, beyond this year. Some of the strength that we've seen recently is likely to fade. Uh, for example, where's the of- strength? Services or goods? Uh, so it's been in services, very consistent. Goods really hasn't lifted or turned around. Still, still basically in deflation. Yeah, so it's really a services story, and we know that dominates uh, the price basket. Where we've seen strength recently mm-hmm. is in healthcare services, uh, but that's that tends to fade over time. You tend to get these increases at the beginning of the year when the government resets Medicare par- Medicare prices. So we're getting almost
0: like Europe where we've got union or quasi-union labor resets, which
5: filter into the numbers. In, in this case, in terms of medical care inflation, I think that's yeah. th- that's exactly right.
0: But the, the mix of this, for our listeners that are buffeted by by the news flow and the president's tweets, whatever their politics, they agree or disagree with the president, I go back to a cross-asset data check, as John Farrell mentioned today, it full disclosure, it shows calmness out there without the new equity volatility. Do you do that? Do you separate the equity tick by tick from everything else out there and what it says about our system?
5: Uh, I, I do. I, I, I tend, when there are, there's breaking news like this, I tend to look first at the bond market. I think that gives me a better sense as to the level of concern out there. And we're seeing yields this morning are just down by a basis point or two across the curve.
0: Within this, again, is I guess the idea of going back to the Fed and we've got John Williams coming over to the New York Fed. He does a thing called our start. We led our coverage this morning with what is our start. I guess it's an inflation adjustment and what to expect. With John Williams our starred? are we going to a lower terminal rate where the new 3.4% GDP is under three Mm -hmm. and even something lower?
5: You know, I don't think so. I think uh, what Williams has said is that the neutral Fed funds rate is probably low by historical standards and will remain low, but not not going lower at this point. If anything, I think there's a little bit more confidence on the committee that with the tax reform efforts, yeah. increases in investment, that trend growth could be heading a bit higher. That might pull up uh, the long-term uh, terminal Fed funds. Rate and then as well. what's really
0: cool and maybe less to me and our, our our listeners is productivity. And I go back, you know, it's almost like every other discussion is horse and cart. Does better economic growth
5: make America great again lead to better productivity or is it the other way around? I think that I think it's an open question, to be honest. I think there is some suggestion that perhaps uh, a pretty hot labor market and the scarcity of labor could lead to Mm investment investment. Uh, that will will improve productivity over time. I think that's the current hope uh, uh, that that the Fed has. And the final time
0: we've got with you, I want to circle back to the news of the morning, which is the tariffs, obviously, in China. And that is, and this, folks, uh, the late, wonderful Alan Meltzer of Carnegie Mellon would take my head off uh, for this right now. Alan Meltzer always said, aggregate the American economy. We're not smart enough to disaggregate. What the market's doing today is they're disaggregating Iowa and soybeans. They're disaggregating Washington State and Boeing aircraft. Can we do that in the modern economy? Can we disaggregate to the labor effects of Senator Grassley's Iowa, or do we really still have to stay all in holistically?
5: As clearly as the bed of the president, uh, I, I tend to look holistically and, and think that the scope of what's been announced so far is relatively small. But it's important to go down to the details as well, because we know that tariffs that, that uh, are aimed at certain sectors uh, that are politically sensitive can have longer-term repercussions. Should
0: I just call them import taxes? I mean, where, I, I, I read this, and I don't remember it right now, folks, but there was a point somewhere out there where they invented the phrase tariffs to smooth the tax word.
5: It's an import tax, right? Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty much so. And Trump has actually used language like that. I think he's often called it a reciprocal tax. Okay. Well, well, how's this going to play
0: out? I mean, it's tit for tat and that's easy media talk. I know there's going to be a delay. There's going to be meetings and all that baloney. The markets tell us this is playing out right now.
5: Yeah. So I think we should expect more announcements from the administration on trade Mm -hmm. just that even go beyond China. But as as for this specific set of measures, there's a lot of time for negotiations. The the administration isn't actually committing that it will definitely implement tariffs. So there is a way through this. Uh, So I think we can... Be cautiously optimistic that maybe there is an agreement uh, reached through negotiations over the next several months. Stephen Friedman,
0: thank you so much. The BNP Paribas uh, this morning. Wonderful to have him in. And a huge day of news flow. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.